Tanakote, Tanakote, Tanakote Katoa, thank you for coming to this panel at the end of a day of presentations at the New Zealand Food Safety and Research Centre uh, annual, seminar. annual Seminar. I'm being prompted by the expert on my right. Um, I'm Kim Hill, and I've been taking notes all day. And looking at the exhibitors, we have microbial detection, we have allergen tests, hygiene tests, antibiotic pesticide tests, forensic origin tests. We have the promise of increasing shelf life by means of antioxidants and oleoresins and flavour enhancement, superior quality, more longevity, we are promised. Now, no shade cast on the sponsors, heaven forfend. But as journalist Michael Pollan might say, is it food? <laughs> now, he said you should not eat anything that your grandmother wouldn't recognise. Oh. Well, welcome to 2023, Granny. <laughs> but is it safe? Libby Harrison, who's Director of Food Safety Science and Research Centre, laid out exactly why trust in New Zealand food supply is crucial. And you're all relying on science to make it so. Against that is the conviction on the part of many that natural, organic, local and seasonal is the only way to ensure safe and nutritious food. Plus, there is what Michael Pollan called nutritionism, the idea that food is just a collection of nutrients that we can mix and match. Added this and added that, exaggerate this and that, margarine. <laughs> Replaced animal fat with laboratory-altered vegetable fat, supposed to be one of the great health breakthroughs. That was not safe, but it was certainly the product of science. All these things and more, I will put to the panel. Let me introduce them now. Sumakara Beaver is the CEO of the Meaterton Industry Association. Glenn Neal is from the Food Standards Australia, New Zealand. Uh, Dr. Phil Bremer is a professor, actually. Phil Bremer is of the University of Targo, president of the New Zealand Institute of Food Science and Technology. Dr. Jocelyn Eason from Plant and Food Research and Dr. Peter Cressy of the ESR. Let me invite them each in turn to give a brief presentation of their core values. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I start? You go. Okay, well, I'm not going to talk about my core values because um, I don't know whether anybody really cares about my core values, but... I will talk a little bit about um, the burning question uh, that has been posed to us, does food safety actually make our food safer or not, or why do we care about it? Um, so as Kim said, I'm the Chief Executive of the Meat Industry Association, and uh, one of our key uh, roles is to support all our, all our members to export food, to export red meat, uh, right around the world to over 110 countries feeding millions of uh, consumers uh, worldwide. And so for us, it's paramount that the food that we produce and we export is safe. 
We know that in New Zealand we have a really strong um, regulatory framework, food safety regulatory framework, and over the years that has stood us in really good stead to give consumers right around the world the confidence that the food that we produce um, is safe and it is um, uh, quality and it is what it, what it says it, it actually is. So that, to a large extent, is based on the science, the science that sits behind the parameters that we work towards when we uh, process and package and export our food. So for us, uh, science, when done right, is absolutely paramount for safe food, and um, you know we, we really do stand behind the scientific society um, in New Zealand that helps us to, to continue this uh, excellent journey on food safe, producing food, food that is safe and of high quality. Uh, thank you, Seema. Glenn. Uh, thanks, Kim. Uh, kia ora kipoti. I'm Glenn Neal from Fizans, Food Standards Australia New Zealand. So I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Um, <laughs> so when you talk about values, one that's really important to me is transparency. And, and transparency, uh, I learned recently, is actually different to openness. Openness can be about uh, just putting everything on your website and doing business that way and thinking that you're being transparent, whereas transparency is all about really understanding the richness of various perspectives and ensuring that you're communicating with your audiences on their terms in ways that matter to them. And uh, you know, that's, that's a big ask because there's lots of audiences and increasingly uh, individual or organisational values uh, are at play and um, increasingly those, those values uh, whilst being very individual can be quite, um, quite specific and sometimes in conflict with each other. Uh, but as individuals, we all love our own values. We all think that they're the best, of course, and um, we won't hear of, uh, of people with different values or, or, or who might see things from a different perspective. So transparency uh, is, is really important to me and, uh, and for Zans. Thank you. I have no idea what that means. We, we are not listening. Well, you know what I mean, transparency. I just explained it. I don't mean to pick on you. Well, you've started. <laughs> I know. I could have started with Seema and pointed out that the World Health Organization rates red meat on the same level as glyphosate when it comes to carcinogen. Uh. Well, and, and I anyway, will rebut you on that one because we've got science to prove that well, it's not true. We'll, of course, science. Yeah. No, of course you have. Yeah, and when, and when you say the WHO. Don't start. <laughs> just don't start because I want to go to Phil. Right, thank you. I'll go a little bit less controversial there and say that if we restricted ourselves to, to doing and eating what our grandparents ate or, or did, life would be pretty boring. Um, so there's um, so many foods and exciting foods that um, you know, weren't available when you were growing up in Invercargill you know, 50 years ago um, that we now enjoy. And uh, I think of um, things such as, um, you know, obviously when my grandma cooked cabbage, she bought it, thought it was grey and, you know, mm. And uh, now we have... Um... That was to kill the listeria. Well, I don't think it was. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she was too worried about listeria. They yeah, maybe they did. Oh. Okay, OK, the food was safe, but it wasn't exactly that palatable. And obviously, um, today we want things other than just a stodgy mess. We want food that tastes good. We want it that's natural. We want it that to be enjoyable. We want it to be convenient. And in order to get all those things, we need to use science um, rather than just boil it for 30 minutes. Yes, natural. We'll hold that thought because I don't think we need science to keep it natural, do we? Well, you know, how many grandparents do you go back? I mean, once upon a time, we were sitting there eating berries and raw meat, and then someone thought about cooking it, and everyone else said, that's a good idea. It tastes a lot better, and it's more no, you're palatable. Being silly now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, you 
Jocelyn Eason, ladies and gentlemen, Plant and Food Research. Ah, Kia everybody. Um, well, I think science has actually made our food safe. I think science is probably going to make some new foods less safe than some of the traditional ones, but then it can also help us work out what the risks associated with those foods are. So plant and food, you know, we know that science delivers um, safe uh, vegetables and fruits. We know how to grow them. We know how to grow them in a way that the residues are relatively low. I think there's been a study in the States that said New Zealand apples have got the lowest residues worldwide. Um, I don't know, maybe the state's apples are slightly higher than the rest of the world, but be it as it may, that's the data. Um, I think we need to be personally responsible for our food as well, um, and that's probably quite a challenge. You know, if I was only eating what my grandmother was eating, probably wouldn't be having broccoli, that's for sure. We didn't get it down south back in the days. Um, we wouldn't be having gold and red kiwi fruit now. Um, but we really do understand, and this is something that science provides us, what the risk with foodborne pathogens is, is all about. And we understand the allergens a little bit more often, rather than just getting sick regularly every time you eat a peanut or something. Actually, we know about peanut allergies. Um, and we're starting to understand some of the other things that just keep us healthy, you know, uh, what nutrition is, what anti-nutritionals are. So I think science has a big um, place to play in food safety, and I think personal responsibility and making sure you know what those use-by dates really mean and keeping your fridge clean is another thing that we should be thinking about for food safety. Thank you. And we were talking today about how we should maybe ditch the best-by dates and just focus on the use by dates. That's a whole other issue. We'll talk about that maybe, Peter. Yeah, so I'm glad that Jocelyn kept using the word risk in there because that's, that's my home place. And um, my, my passion in food safety is about good decision making. And good decision making uh, is based on uh, an understanding of the risk. So that's where I come in. I, um, I weigh evidence, I look at evidence, and then I provide people like Glenn, uh, people like Roger and Tanya, uh, with the information to make good decisions about food safety. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I gave them the best shot and that's wow. what I could come up with. Kitchen up. That wasn't what I expected. All right, let's talk about diet safety just for a moment because I don't want to bang on about it, but I did raise the issue about how the World Health Authority classes red meat in the same carcinogenic category as glyphosate. Mm. Um, please explain. So, um, look, I'm sitting on a panel with esteemed scientists who probably know the science inside out way better than I do. But what I do know is that the World Health Organization and many of the Eat Lancet studies are based on the consumption of red meat at excessive levels. We've just finished um, uh, a research uh, study with uh, um, Ag Research, Auckland University, Massey University and a whole bunch of other esteemed science um, scientific organisations here in New Zealand that looks at the impact of red meat on um, a healthy human when fed at the recommended daily dosage, which is in line with our food, um, what is it, the Ministry of Health guidelines for healthy eating. And when you look at it through that lens, the impact of eating red meat actually has beneficial um, impacts on your uh, well-being and on, on your nutritional values uh, as compared to if you eat in excess. If you eat anything in excess, it's not good. It does so, appear to me that it's a very individual thing, right? 
One well, person's perfectly adequate diet of red meat might be another person's poison. And this is what I wanted to hear during the day from somebody, but nobody brought it up. Um, it's such an individual thing. It's to do with your genetic makeup, it's to do with epigenetics, as to what is safe and what isn't. I mean, if we talk about listeria, for example, you know one person might get sick from listeria, somebody else will be absolutely fine. So where do you set the bar? Peter. Yeah, I'd just like to come back to what Jocelyn was oh, talking fine. about. Oh, fine, ignore the question. <laughs> <laughs> you don't dump me in it, eh? <laughs> Sorry, not Jocelyn. 15 yeah, seconds of an introduction, then <clears throat> you yeah, ignore I the know, No, that's fine. Yeah, but I, I think the point about meat is that they often focus in the studies on the amount of meat people eat. What they don't tend to look at so much is what they're not eating. So what, what is the diet likely to be of a person who's eating large amounts of meat? possibly low in vegetables and fruit. And we, we know from countless studies the beneficial aspects of, of fruit and vegetables. So I think you know, any, any of these factoids come needs to be dug into. Yeah. yeah. So, Sorry, so what was your question again? I'm going to crack it. Like you care. I'll crack it answering it. Go on then. So, uh, somebody's picked up on my favourite question. <laughs> I can't remember what it was now. What was yeah, it? Oh, the stereo. I think, I think, oh, no. so, so most of us eat the stereo probably on a daily basis. Some of us, um, you, um, I think there's some studies that uh, we list um, a million stereo per meal at least once a year, right. um, several thousand quite often. Um, but the food regulations are designed to make, uh, ensure the safety of the most vulnerable people in the community. So for the stereo, it's the very old, the pregnant woman, the elderly, and people on immune suppression drugs. So they're designed to um, yeah, support the weakest. Yes, which is a fairly low bar, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, mean it is. quite a lot of issues when uh, you know, a pregnant lady has an you know, abortion. Um, you know, a lot of our cases of hysteria, we have um, about 26 deaths associated yeah, with hysteria yeah, yeah, a year. But how do you assess the hysteria? How do you assess... Do you wait until somebody says, I'm sick and I ate that piece of cheese? Uh, well, no, well, there's, there's two ways. One, there's products that are, designed, are considered to be at risk. They're, they're tested. Right. Um, so there's routine testing of at-risk products and um, surveillance testing. And then, and then there's the traceback testing of someone. It's really hard to actually trace back the steroid because it can take up to... 50, 60 days before you show the symptoms. So. Yeah, and as somebody yeah. pointed out, by that time the product's gone. Mm. Yep. Pretty Whatever much. Whatever it was that gave you the hysteria. Now, we also heard about various technical fixes being explored to get rid of E. coli or salmonella and hysteria in food. You know, plasma-activated water, God knows what. Is there a risk that we will get so techy that food producers and processors We'll just leave it to the technical fix as opposed to cleaning up their own processes. What do you think? No, Anybody? No, the technologies that um, effectively clean up products at the end of a process are, are pretty expensive and they tend to be a little bit hit and miss as well. So, no, um, the, the basic principle of food production and processing is that you take reasonable steps along the chain to minimise contamination. Um, that, ends up lowering the risk, but it also lowers the cost of mm -hmm. production as well. All right. You yeah. agree with that? I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm just thinking back to um, an innovation that uh, took place in our industry, and this is for the export of chilled product right across the world and um, the shelf life that goes with that chilled product. I mean, it really does start with taking um, steps right at the beginning on farm to manage 
the health of the animal and how that animal is handled and treated, right through to actually pack packaging the product in the factory. So if, if we leave it all to technology, um, I, you know, I think that that personal responsibility for managing the risk throughout the supply chain is removed and you'll never have a good outcome at, at the end. So, you know, one of, the, one of the great things that we've managed to do is that even without um, sort of additives or whatever, we can achieve up to 90 days of shelf life for chilled products. So a consumer in the UK, not currently because obviously they're experiencing high inflation, but previously they would sit down and eat a, a leg of lamb that's chilled, which is just as good as fresh from New Zealand. And they will enjoy it and they'll come back for more because it's, it's matured, it's safe, it's healthy, it's, it's natural. And that is because, you know, processes have taken the responsibility to manage this, the risk right throughout the chain. The, the chain. And they've taken their personal responsibility, not just relying on a, you know, IA bottle or whatever. Because um, ultimately it comes down to your reputation as a food producer and yeah, exporter. I mean, that's an it ideal comes, world. Yeah, but well, you know, you get rogue elements and people who don't care about reputation. Well, I mean, I mean they, the idea, they probably the idea will get is, taken out of the business altogether, wouldn't they? The ideal is, yeah. you know, from the farm to the fork, the whole, yeah. you know, business. And there are ways of tracing that increasingly. Correct. Yeah. So does that add an extra layer to the insurance of safety, do you think? I mean, absolutely, traceability is paramount, so that yeah. if there is a, a, an incident or, or something, and it is required by legislation, that we can trace back um, any consignment to, to origin. Uh, and that is to safeguard uh, exactly what you're talking about. In case there is some sort of incident, we can go back, look at what the situation is, put in a fix, and make sure it doesn't happen again. If you grow more crops inside, vertically and or inside, they can use more agrochemicals because there's no fear of the rain causing runoff. What do you say about that? <laughs> I would say agrochemicals are extremely expensive liquids and who wants to spray them on and be wasteful? I would have thought that in enclosed environments, um, unless you get an, an outbreak of pests and diseases, you wouldn't use them at all. You've got a lot more control. You can minimise those pests and diseases to come in on your crops. You can use really good hygiene to minimise the diseases. But uh, doesn't and growing inside increase the chances of disease? No, no. Mm. I would. You, um, one thing we've been thinking about this in plant and food because you know plants need to be. If it's plants, they need to be a little bit stressed. You can use lights to stress them to to put them in a situation so that they could be protected. But you also have to introduce those pests and diseases. They don't just hang about all over the place all the time. So well, make your fungi do, don't they? Yeah, but you sterilise all your... Well, you don't have soils in some of these. You just use hydroponics or aeroponics. So you've only got water. Make sure you've got really clean water. Those, those use a lot of hygiene. You know, as long as the people aren't bringing things in, you might need your people to be wearing lovely big white outfits with, you know, covers Come on please. their feet and hair nets and everything and treat it quite hygienically. You won't get introduction of pests and diseases. Your residue should be quite low, if yeah, there should I, be none. I think to put that comment into context, um, this was a grower from the Hawke's Bay and they were saying that they can't actually apply the pesticides and insecticides at the moment because they keep getting washed off. 
too much um, so I don't think they want to use more. They just want to be able to use them in the responsible way in an area where they'll be effective and not just, you know, rained upon. Still, I mean, if you're growing something inside and you don't have to worry about it being washed away, then it's going to stay on the crops longer. Is that not a hazard in any way? Or are we all completely relaxed about agrochemicals now? So, agrochemicals have residues and you can wash those residues off mm. the produce before it goes to market. Right. But they also break down as well. So yeah. it depends on the agrochemical, how long the, the, the wait would be before consumers eat it, um, what, the, what the processing and washing would be, but they would be clean before they go to consumers. Mm. Because, I mean, would you see the whole move that I referred to earlier of um, organic, natural, seasonal, local unpasteurised, <laughs> would you see, if I can count, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. would you see that as anti-science? Yeah, absolutely, mm. and anti-productivity anti as well. Mm. Um, was, it know, the was it the anti-pasteurised that set you off on that? <laughs> if I hadn't mentioned that, would it have been all right? No, not really. Um, no. Um, Listen, we're watching something unfold in Europe which I think is um, potentially quite disastrous. It's called the New Green Deal. And there's probably people about to throw things at me, but the New Green Deal has the potential to drive uh, Europe's production um, back by 50 mm -hmm. years, which means they're going to exert an import pressure on the, on the, on the planet's food supply. They're going to start importing products uh, that would otherwise be considered local in places like Africa and the Middle East, etc. Well, can you be more specific? What's the problem? Well, the problem is um, the shift to organic production, for example, uh, it, it, it drives down yields, right? You don't get the yields, you don't get the, the, the crop per, um, per volume um, relative to uh, conventionally mm. farmed product. We saw this in Sri Lanka, right? Well, they, we did see that in Sri Lanka. We don't yeah. know, you know, there are certain variables involved in a country like Sri Lanka. Absolutely. Absolutely, and um, you know, half a billion people um, suddenly switching to organics or, or sh shifting to organics with a with a with quite an aggressive target. Um, I think uh, presents some disastrous scenarios for the for the for the planet. Yeah. Well, we know. I mean, we know that the Europeans are not self-sufficient in food across the board. Certainly, in um, you know, in meat and dairy, they're not self self-sufficient. So if they move to uh, a system whereby their production and productivity levels are further constrained, they will have to source globally, which means that there's going to be less product available for countries that really do need it. Um, and so the whole food security, food sufficiency argument globa globally becomes much more relevant um, and potentially more difficult to, um, to resolve. Peter, do you think that there's any truth in the perception that the food we eat has got riskier in some ways? No, I don't believe so. I, I believe it has or become... Or we've got more vulnerable. Uh, have we become more vulnerable? No, I don't think so. We've become more aware. You know, I think if you went back 30 years, somebody would get food poisoning. They'd go, oh, I probably did it to myself, and you'd never hear about it. Whereas now they'll broadcast it on social media, and the um, purported source of that food poisoning will be published halfway around the world. So I think we've become, the world's become smaller. We've become more aware of these things and we broadcast them more. 
Do you think that there's any truth in the suggestion that just as one theory was that our homes were too clean and that's why we all became allergic to things? Uh, hygiene hypothesis. Yeah. Um, is there any truth in the suggestion that because we've become hyper-conscious of sterilising our food, we've become more vulnerable to, you know, a wee bit of salmonella oh. poisoning? Don't get me started. I mean, we're talking about grandmother and her food supply, right? So, so 50 years ago, we all we all used to buy local, put our meat in a meat safe, and live to the ripe old age of 45. Well, so now now you're saying oh. we didn't. No, that's nonsense. Don't try that one. Because people live to a ripe old age. They do now. They did then. They do well, now. <laughs> we're living longer than we ever have before, yeah. right? Well, fewer children are dying. Fewer children are dying. So the life expectancy in New Zealand has never been this long, right? It's, we're looking at a future, though, where it's going to start to decrease because of obesity, if you want to get back to nutrition, but yes. that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> but the food supply has played a significant part, along with vaccinations and yeah. chlorinated water and all of those no, good no. things. It's played a significant part in advancing the life expectancy of... of of not just New Zealand, but Western and, and, and you know, developed countries around the, around the planet. So if science really wanted to make food safe, it would, it, would, um, it would tell everybody to take the sugar out and the salt out, wouldn't it? If you're talking about dietary problems. Well, salt and sugar are good preservatives. Mm. Yeah. They serve a functional purpose in a food. You've got to actually have sugar to actually make your body function. You've actually got to have a certain amount in your diet. We forget about that, don't we? So, uh, from whence cometh... Have you already forgotten about that? From whence cometh obesity, then? Well, from the overconsumption of nutrients mm. relative to our energy expenditure. Quite right. Mm. So mm. what science got to say about that? Do you have any control over that at all? Or just on the sidelines lecturing people about hysteria? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, also lecturing them about good diets. But um, besides that, no, I... I think it's an extremely difficult problem to tackle yeah. because it's personal behaviours. And, you know, I, I kind of have a, a, a personal theory is that we're almost as an organism programmed to eat when the food's there. If you go back, you know, thousands of years, food was a lot scarcer, so it was important to eat when the food was available. Now, I think that continues, but we've developed to a stage where food is always available. Mm. We used to have to go out and chase our food. Mm. We used yeah. to have to go and catch it. Yeah. Now, look at us. <laughs> Sitting in front of a television, you can dial up somebody to bring it to your door, which might be about 10 steps away. You sit back down, you eat it, and, and you think of other ways to not have to move. Yeah, up until recently, we wouldn't have considered you know, obesity to be a food safety issue, even though when we survey consumers, they'll say that um, overeating is one of the greatest food safety issues. Um, but more and more, as, as scientists, we're understanding the importance of um, communicating with consumers, trying to inform them of you know, good strategies around food. So um, I think we're all sort of moving... You can't be fat-shaming, though. No, but we, 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 dilemma, teach them, we teach them how to, how to read labels, we mm -hmm. teach them how to understand what's in their food, and that's both a food safety but also educational purpose. So, um, uh, you know, we as scientists, we're evolving too as the market need evolves. Tell me about labelling. Is it adequate in New Zealand? Does it tell people 
everything that they need to know in terms of safety of food? Well, for a start, most people don't read the labels. Well, you just said that they ought to. They ought to, so, yes, they do. Let's and, pretend and, that they do. What and, will they find? Um, a lot of people don't understand the label. Oh, well, that's going to be a really useful exercise. Isn't it? Yeah, well, there is work being undertaken. Also, very small print. It is small print. <laughs> However, well, you're meant to be right? <laughs> Food Standards Code requires oh, yeah. it to be legible, Kim. Does it? Yes. Well, so, so fortunately, there is quite a lot of work being undertaken to understand how consumers read labels and how to improve them. What so, should be on that label that isn't on the label? A QR code which takes you off to somewhere where you can read it properly and, and see everything mm. else that you want to see. But what should be available for the consumer? on food labels or the QR code or information that they're not getting now. Star rating? Mm. Yeah. In terms of whether well, it's... An interpretive, an interpretive, see at a glance view of the, nutri uh, the nutritional quality of that food product. Yeah. Right. And that's where we're moving towards. We're in a voluntary phase with that at the moment. Um, the ministers in, in agreeing that that be voluntary two or three years ago set, set some five-year targets and there's, uh, there's no possible way those targets are going to get met in a couple of years' time mm -hmm. on the current track. So ministers are then going to have to consider whether or not that be uh, mandatory for Australia and New Zealand, and it, um, yeah, it's quite likely that it will be. So yeah, hopefully that that will uh, be something that consumers can 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 pick up and, and really run with in terms of um, both the conscious and subconscious uh, decision-making processes when it comes to food. I mean, I think you know lab labelling certainly has a role to play in all of this, but it has to be meaningful labelling. So the star rating, the nutritional panel on your food that actually conveys some real information is, is worthy and it should continue. Um, there's a whole bunch of other uh, labelling that's currently applied to products all around the world that is just responding to, to fads. Um, this is my personal opinion, um, country of origin labelling. What does it actually tell you about the safety of a product, particularly when it's made, you know, it says made from local and imported ingredients. Imported from what? What is well, the percentage? Well, that's what we'd like to know where it's imported no, from. but mm. you'll never get that on the label because of exactly the issue that you said. The label's already so tiny that by the time you list the well, 500... Well, make it bigger, because a lot of people do want to know about country origin. How about consumers in overseas markets well, who think of New Zealand as a safe product? I don't think you need to be a Sorry to interrupt. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I don't well, What's it a market and for? I'll come back with. I don't think you need to be a racist or a xenophobe. I think people are entitled, surely. You're looking at me completely askance, just like, <laughs> like you've never struck anybody with this opinion before. You must have. No, People no. have a right to, to decide where their food comes from. It's part of the full spectrum of knowledge about what they eat, isn't it? No, you all disagree. No, no, I no, think, no, I think no, country no, I disagree. Mm -hmm. But whether it should be on labels or not, I think is yeah. a moot point. I mean, I think if you feel that strongly about something, then do some homework. Mm. On a tin of peaches. <laughs> I mean, you, yeah. you're at the supermarket, you're going to buy a tin of peaches. How much homework do you do? I mean, <laughs> That's right. I should say, you know, peaches from Russia. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 
What? What difference does it make if it's from Russia? People have... <laughs> you know, if the page is safe, if it's been canned in a proper facility and it has made it through the New Zealand border, what difference does oh, it make? It just means that it might be a little bit cheaper. This is the global amoral environment we're living in today, where it doesn't matter well, where anything comes food, from. Right, you know, it's just food. Eating pineapples in the middle of winter, eating um, well, that's a whole you know, tropical thing. fruit in the middle of winter, I they're mean, not grown locally. That's a whole But people thing. want to eat them. People want to, but should they be able to? Well, well you're talking about personal choice. choice, aren't choice. Aren't <laughs> The other fascinating thing that came, oh, Glenn Neal said, this is the guy. It must be true then. This is yes. the guy. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. This is the guy that said, if it's only xenophobes care about food labels of origin. <laughs> Science says bisphenol A or BPA in plastics is not a health risk. That's right. So nobody needs to worry about BPA. That's right. Yeah. At, at the Are you sure? Yes. At the levels found in food packaging and the amount that migrates into food, which is then consumed, mm. the levels are irrelevant. Yet it's the most animated thing prior to sugar that, that consumers have been animated about right. in the last 10 years. Now, I'm interested it's to irrational. Know, all right. I'm interested to know how you think, or would anybody else, how they think that the PA got to be such a public enemy number maybe one? That's, that's it. It's a great question. So mm. I, I, I think there's a level of... of it's, it's a paradoxical issue in that there's a level of sophistication that goes along with a consumer's perception of risk, but also they, they, there's um, essentially a difference between how consumers perceive risk versus how scientists uh, effectively calculate and manage it. Right, and it's essentially uh, the difference is essentially this thing called outrage, and the difference between hazard and risk uh, are quite different. Hazard is like IARC and its and its business on a spa team at the moment. Right, IARC will just give you a yes/no answer. Will You're something cause cancer? You're talking about the agency of the World Health Organization that has said that aspartame is possibly carcinogenic. Yes, it's one of two that's reviewing aspartame this month, and the other one that that's just meeting as we speak is probably going to arrive at a different conclusion because it assesses the risk of, of, of illness from what consumers are exposed to. I.e. it just doesn't, it just doesn't give you a binary yes, no, this will, make, this will cause cancer. It actually goes a step further and goes, well, this is what people are being exposed to. And we all know, because Paracelsus said it 500 years ago, that the dose makes the poison. So it's what mm -hmm. consumers are exposed to that actually puts that hazard in a context which enables regulators like us to make decisions about whether or not substances should, should stay or remain approved. It does strike me that people are much more concerned about chemicals, mm. aspartame, uh, bisphenol, than they are about salmonella or other sort of food-borne diseases that mm. perhaps they ought to be. What do you think? I think so. I think... Um, well, we know there's a lot of allergens in different plants. You can measure them. You have to label, even though the label's got quite small text. But chemicals feel, they feel foreign. They're not. They're, mm. they're the compounds mm. in the plant. And I think it's just, um, it's just the way it's portrayed. People are just worried, you know? I don't think BPA is a natural product. No, BPA is. Or a no, but, but if you talk about foods, foods are made up of a whole lot of different chemicals. 
Mm. If people knew, if you had to list all of the things um, in foods from a chemical composition perspective, they'd be horrified. Yeah, and I mean... Trust me, the nastiest ones are completely natural. <laughs> yep. Far and away. Caffeine, yeah. nicotine. Mm. Mm. Aflatoxin. The surrounding narrative of BPA is that essentially it's... Um, it sounds like, a, it sounds like a, a foreign contaminant, doesn't it, BPA? BPA is actually a plasticizer. It's an ingredient of plastic. It's needed to give plastic its plasticky properties. So what happens when you take it out? You gotta I don't put, know. You tell me. You've got no you to put another properties. plasticizer in. What, but, but aren't we getting rid of plastic completely? Well, in order to But the, can we get rid of plastic completely? But what the hell? I was going to ask you about plastic. Mm. How's your meat going to get on with that plastic? Yeah, well, you see, that's the thing, because we, we, we rely on a certain level of, of plastic packaging to preserve our meat and make sure that it can travel across the globe to its consumers in the best um, possible shape, form and uh, condition. See, this and to so be, we yeah. can't, we, we've done some research and uh, yes, there is, some, there is a role for recycled packaging and the cardboard boxes and, and the likes, but ultimately when the plastic hits the, the product, we have to be 100% sure that there's going to be no contaminants. And so we need virgin plastic. It's very difficult to, to um, introduce recycled materials, which we're not sure where they've come mm. from and what they're made up of, and put that against a food that we are telling the consumer it's safe to eat this food without us having the, the, the certainty that the food is safe. So That's another theme that came up today, actually, the sustainability and mm. safety, and the need to trade off. I mean. Fewer agrochemicals may make food less safe, so there must be a trade-off in terms of safety if people are going to demand fewer agrochemicals for no good reason, you're telling me, Jocelyn, because they just sort of wash off. Well, you don't need it. If you don't need agrochemicals, why would you put them on your anyway, food? That's mm. beside the point. Okay. Sustainability. <laughs> Sustainability. That was a red herring. Sustainability and safety. Has there got to be a trade-off? You know, we're talking about the plastic. Some products need plastic. If you are forced not to have plastic, then what do you say? Well, you know, caveat emptor, is yes. it? Well, I think, I think with everything, you have to examine um, the unintended consequences that may, may come out of a decision. And so the panel earlier today that I called was talking about sustainability and, and safety. And I said, well, at some point, you've got to make a decision, you know. If you go all into sustainability, then you expose yourself to a whole lot of food safety hazards. Is that good enough? Was that bad enough? And then Does that's that, not sustainable. And that's not sustainable because exactly. then you get food waste yeah. and you get yeah. sick people and all sorts of things. The same thing in climate change, and you touched on climate change a little bit earlier. Yes, we all know that we need to do something about emissions, but we also have to be careful with what we do. It doesn't have unintended consequences of... Uh, you know, killing off the breadbasket of New Zealand, which is the agricultural sector. And suddenly what? We might be sh surely clean and green, but we will have no money to import any of the products that we all enjoy, including foreign food. Mm. What do you think about the AI in the future of food? Uh, there was a very interesting presentation and it was about, you know, AI being able to assess whether food is fresh or rotting and you wouldn't need, 
it would just, you know, order a new supply if it needed to, and nobody will ever go shopping anymore. That's beside the point. Somebody said, well, won't that mean that AI will reduce our ability to use our human senses and become dangerously dependent on it? I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Would we ever lose our um, senses, though? You know, the, the thing that you love about food is how it, how it smells and how it tastes and all the texture. So you're going to use all your senses when you're eating the food. The fact that an AI can tell you before you can sense that something's off with listeria or whatever, um, and before you eat it, it's probably a good thing because you don't want to sense it and the, you're only going to get sick. So I think there's a balance. Um, AI should be quite useful. It's, it's, it's just making sure that we, that we keep feeding it with all the right data. Oh, well, I, that is I, I do think there's a risk, though, that we'll, we'll lose our understanding of what's good and bad. And, mm. and we get situations now where mushrooms come packaged with a best before date, and consumers look at that pack, their packaged mushrooms and throw them out. Um, somehow they've lost the ability to actually open the pack and decide whether that mushroom is fit to eat or not. Yeah. So the more we use machines or symbols or signs to tell us what to think, yeah. and the further we get removed away from our food, the greater chance that we'll, we'll waste it. Yeah. So, you know, I think you should be out in the garden digging and growing the food and eating yeah. your wonky vegetables and, and your lettuce. Back, yeah, and that comes back to the, the whole best before and use by, doesn't it? Because the best before... It's a marketing tool, isn't it? It's a no, 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 it's an advisory. It's no, a quality no, indicator. No, no. It's a government requirement, so it's you know it's it's done with the best of intents. It's around either. Um, you know, like I always it, thought it was the grocery people um, forcing us to buy more. By no, 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 no. This is a minimum That's regulatory. This is a minimum regulatory requirement yeah, in the Australian New Zealand Food Standards Code. But who's the heads? Well, we don't. This I mean, who decided? Nobody in the in the the basement of any of the not, governments would have said, mm, "I think that people will enjoy these crackers if they the, before this particular." That's yeah, not think, a, think we're not of a, a gullible enough food. in government if, to go. Oh, industry industry's telling us it's a good idea. Therefore, we'll go and do it. If, no, to, it doesn't work like that either. Mm. If, if you went to. if you went to to a supermarket <laughs> and there was two bottles of milk there, brand A and brand B, and and they didn't have best before dates, and, and brand B was thirty days old, and brand A was two days old and you took them both home, you'd yeah. taste brand A and whatever it was, the two-day-old one and think that's great, you'd taste the 30-day-old one and think that's terrible, you never buy the 30-day-old brand B again. So it's a way that um, the food industry can sort of say to consumers, this is when our product's at its peak and as a consumer you can look at that and if it's um, past its best before date you can still um, eat it or drink it but you may sort of give it some allowance for its flavour not being perfect. All right, so we're keeping the best before dates, are we? No, we can... Yeah. Well, we're... There's no plans to review them at present? Don't you think they ought to be? Oh, well, I thought there were some plans to review them, isn't there? Ah, <laughs> uh, no, Phil. No, there's not. Okay. <laughs> There's I'd like to agree with you, Phil, but that would make me no, wrong as well. <laughs> uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure one of my colleagues said that they've put in some pressure on the government to review them then. Oh, there might be pressure, but there's no plan to review. And who would the pressure be coming from? Um, so there is some concern that because... Yeah, in, in the front row there. Um, the one giggling. Um, because consumers don't understand this before dates, they look at them and they throw it out, whereas we'd like them to think... My point! That's why we don't need them. 
I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> He's disagreeing with you. Was that just on principle? <laughs> I thought you were. Because he said, oh, it's quite handy. People go to the fridge and they look at the milk. And so, so, so you change your best before dates to a produced on date? No, you oh. just say use by. Ah, uh, no, 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 no. Because no, used by. That's a safety thing. That indicates the products by. become unsafe. Exactly. What are we going to do with all the but, complaints but the about staleness? You're a whole bunch of scientists. What do you care about anything beyond what makes it safe or not? That's food sport. No, f food can lose its um, optimal eating qualities and still be perfectly yeah. safe. It's nothing to do with you. You're a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't be here talking about optimal eating quality. Well, we're in the food industry. The food's got to taste good. You're nothing to do with the food industry. Food's oh, supposed to be keeping us safe. It, it, we want to make safe food that tastes great. Oh, I think you've lost your way. <laughs> I think you've lost your way. We're talking about safety of food. We're not talking about marketing schemes or... Oh, they're, in, you know, they're interconnected. Yeah. No, look, you know. I think you're absolutely right from a safety point of view. Me? Yeah. Of course. What? Of course. <laughs> Pizza. From a safety point of view, yeah, get rid of the best befores. But... As, as a human being, as somebody who loves eating food, keep them. I want to know whether that food is at its best to be eaten now. I want to enjoy it as much as I can. So, so it's not a food safety issue, but um, it is an important issue, I think. All right. Um, what is it, let me ask you first, mm. what is it in the next 10 years that you think is going to present the biggest challenge to science in terms of keeping food safe? Yeah, I mean, the, the wider um, gamut of things called novel foods, mm. and that's um, perhaps items that aren't traditionally consumed as foods, but somebody has a bright it's idea. It's precision that fermentation business. That, that's another aspect of novel foods. What are you thinking about novel foods? What am I thinking what about? What sort of novel foods are you thinking about? Uh, I mean, Ooh, too soon to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you get, uh, say, fruits and that that perhaps have been eaten in Africa and places like that, and somebody goes, might sell well in New Zealand. Superfoods. Maybe, yeah. And what's your problem with that? Because it doesn't have that history of safe consumption. We're, we're taking a bit of a punt on it, and, and often to assess the safety of a novel food like that is, is not a simple exercise. Um, it, can be, it can be done through a vast array of toxicological testing, but often the, the innovators wanting to bring these foods in don't have that sort of financial backing. So, um, you know, they say, well, it, it, somebody ate it once and it was all right, so it should be all right here. Okay. Yeah. Um, Jocelyn? Yeah, novel foods, I think, sell foods. Um, if cell foods are going to be cooked, you're probably fine. Cell foods. Cell foods, something that you, you don't need uh, to grow in an, in an mm. animal or on an animal. Um, so made, I suppose, made in, in culture from cells, make into a tissue. Um, if those are not going to be cooked, and people go raw cell foods, um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Phil here, he's just shaking, he just doesn't like this at all. There's a challenge with how we can ensure that those are food safe, we just don't know. Yeah, so exciting areas. And there's no reason why they wouldn't be 
subject to, you know, other strange viruses and bacteria that we don't know about yet? Yeah, I don't know. The, um, I guess the first step in the production of um, cultured meat is to, is to sort of understand the cell line, and you go to a lot of effort to make sure you've got a nice clean cell line. You want it to be pathogen-free so it grows well. Right. Um, so there's companies that are specialising in finding nice cell lines. But there are a lot of challenges associated with their cultured meats in terms of what you grow it in, the growth hormones, the antibiotics, the, the scaffolding. You've got to give it some sort of shape and structure so the scaffolding could be plant-based or it could be meat-based and, and with that it becomes an allergen. Um, one of the biggest challenges with um, these cultured meats is we don't exactly know how we're going to do it yet. Um, so we don't even know all of the potential challenges. Is that the same as the precision fermentation? Um, what does that mean? I don't even know what that means. I'm not exactly sure what... Um... Anybody know? Yep. I thought you would. Thanks. <laughs> what, will you listen this time? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm all ears. Yeah, okay. So precision fermentation is basically about getting microbes to do the, do the job of plants and the, that plants and animals have historically done in terms of producing particularly proteins in a in a bioreactor, in a vat-type scenario. So you're essentially harnessing bacteria. A bit of uh, good old-fashioned uh, genetic modification, you're teaching these bacteria in a very precise way how to go about doing things like, for example, producing a dairy protein. And... and was that good? Did you get yeah, that? No, yeah, no, it was good. Yeah. So you're talking about fake milk, That's for one example. way of putting mm -hmm. it. It's not a way that I'd necessarily characterise, but How yeah. would you characterise it? <laughs> Precision fermentation. <laughs> and, you could, and you could make anything that way, mm. technically. Mm. Huh. A range of things, yeah. 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 Does that worry you? Oh, look, uh, I mean, I think um, Phil said it. It's, the technology is emerging. It's not there yet to be uh, rolled out at scale and to be commercially available at cost. To, to really make a dent in the market. But ultimately, if we look forward another, what, 30, 40 years, population is gonna grow, right? It's inevitable. So from my perspective, I think there's going to be a role for alternative proteins, precision fermentation, cell-based mm -hmm. food, whatever. There's going to be a role there, particularly if it is um, done in a safe way, so the food that comes out of it is actually safe at scale and as cost-effective. But from my perspective, from a red meat industry perspective, we're providing an alternative um, option for consumers to make their own choice. Yeah. And if they want to you know, eat um, a product I mean, which that's... has 16 ingredients versus eat a product which has one that's ingredient, right. that is their choice. Yes, that's right. All, all government approved ingredients, though. Ah. <laughs> You Regardless, didn't know, no, I, I had to explain. What's your fear for the next 10 years? It's not, not so much a fear, but I, I, I'm with Surma and thinking of perhaps on a longer time scale around um, yeah, 2050, we're going to have an extra 2 billion people on the planet. We're going to go from 8 billion to 10 billion. Mm. But our protein demand is going to go up by 40%. Why? Mm. With only a 20% increase in the population? Because in, in a, particularly Asia and Africa, there's going to be a, a, a further democratisation of wealth, which means... As you come out of poverty, the first thing it seems you want to do is eat, eat more protein, and Real so protein. there's going to be a bigger uh, protein demand. And you think about what, what Europe's up to with its new green deal and its plummeting productivity. And to me, it's it's about food security, uh, and it's 
sorry, Surma, but it's about will New Zealanders be able to afford a stake in, in well, 10 years' time? Um, you didn't mention any safety concerns. No, I don't have any. You don't have any? No. Because you think, what, the regulations are sufficient? Oh, I think, um, yeah, I mean, some great work by government. But um, <laughs> seriously, though, in the last 30 years, the way that the food industry has internalised safety and taken and, and run with it and owned it um, using its own systems yeah. has kind of meant that governments almost become irrelevant in, 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 this, in, this, in this safety story. But We're there to mop up when things go badly wrong. I say well done to the panel. Uh, Professor Phil Bremer, Dr Peter Cressy, Dr Jocelyn Eason, Glenn Neal and Sirma Karapiva. Thank you all and thank you all for coming.